Welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Rebecca Weidmann and I'm the host of this episode. I'm super excited to speak with Fritz Götz, Elisabetta Militaru and Markus Jokela about geography and personality. Hi everyone, thank you so much for being here today. Hi Rebecca. Hello. If you don't mind, can I ask you to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Elisa Militaru. I am a PhD student at the University of Cambridge, and my research is currently focused on the psychology of places. I'm very excited to be here today. Thank you very much for the invitation, Rebecca. Yeah, hi everybody. Uh, my name is Fritz Götz. I uh, was a PhD student at the University of Cambridge, so it's, it's a pleasure to be with Elisa here this morning, and I'm one of the oldest fanboys of Marcus in this field. And I am now an assistant professor in personality psychology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. And I'm Marcus Jokela. I'm uh, at the University of Helsinki. I'm a professor and uh, I've been working with uh, geographical psychology for uh, maybe 15 years or so. Thank you for taking your time to talk with me about geography and personality. This might not be an intuitive combination to some of our listeners. So maybe you can first elaborate what this research niche entails. I'll take you back in time a little bit to, to when this all started so as to understand why it has taken the field so long to get there. It's important to know that there has been interest in, in regional variation in psychological constructs, including personality broadly defined for a long time. And there have been sort of a few paper here and there throughout the history of our field. But I think the moment when this specific field, geographical psychology that we all identify with really takes off is, is 2008. So this is the publication of this landmark article that, that Jason Renfro writes together with uh, Sam Gosling and Jeff Potter. And what they do there is they have this huge data set of personality variables, in particular the big five that Sam Gosling had been collecting online for years. And they have information where people live. So they, they do this very first thing where they just map out personality across the United States, across all the, the 51 states. And they correlate this to a host of political, economic, social and health outcomes, controlling for a bunch of social demographics. And they see that there are robust links and that they're really interesting patterns. And the important thing to bear in mind here is the reason why it takes so long for the field to get there is because to do this and to do it right, you need heaps and heaps of data. Right. So we're talking about 51 states and you want to make sure that every state is well represented. So you need to have more than a handful of residents there. And it really took the age of big data and the Internet in psychological research to get us there. So this is sort of the, the moment to me, at least that's the birth of modern geographical psychology. And everything that we'll be talking about today follows directly from that paper that's published in 2008. Yeah, and if I if I continue on that, I I think one of the key changes that defined geographical psychology compared to many of the earlier studies on geography and psychology was exactly the study of personality and and other traits at the sub-country level. So you were looking at states or you were, you were looking at some neighborhoods or regions, whatever regions they are, that are smaller than countries or nations. So this sort of also separated geographical psychology to its specific line of research compared to cultural psychology, especially. Most of the previous research related to location and psychology had focused on on countries and, and cultural psychology level studies and the geographical psychology approach, which can include between country comparisons, of course, has been more interested in, in these kind of regional or neighborhood comparisons or, or 
postal address comparisons and, and so on. I completely agree with what Fritz and Marcus uh, are saying, is that I think geographical psychology has really advanced the field in the sense that it's made us think in a very systematic way about certain broad environmental factors. Like Fritz was saying, uh, this existed before as well, but what geographical psychology has done is that it's created a framework. So even that seminal paper that Jason, um, Sam Gosling and Jeff Porter put forward outlines three potential mechanisms that lie at the core of these uh, geographical variations in, in personality. And these are selective migration, social influence, and ecological factors, right? And this acts as a framework, a framework that has been used in, in, in the research that has come after, after this and has created a lot of opportunities for us to, to, to study the drivers of these uh, geographical variations in personality. Can you maybe give some examples of findings that since the 2008 publication have been reported? Yeah, I mean, I can just carry on from that. So thinking about sort of the drivers of uh, variation in geographical regional personality, one of them is the idea that certain ecological factors, so these are broad environmental factors like terrain, climate, um, GDP, act as uh, stresses and shape these uh, these variations in personality. And one of the projects that we've been currently working on has particularly looked at the associations between personality um, and, and landscape. So what we did here is that we average personality at, say, a county or zip code level, um, and we essentially uh, end up with a regional personality score. And uh, the question that our research addresses is whether landscape has some part to play in variation in regional personality. So we look at whether all sorts of landscapes ranging from seaside, hillside, mountains, urban areas, and so on, have distinct regional personalities. And for instance, what we, we find is that agricultural areas have higher levels of conscientiousness. This makes sense when we think about the sort of requirements of agricultural endeavors. Those require industriousness, uh, diligence, potentially following very strict timelines. These are all traits that are associated with conscientiousness. We also find that agricultural areas have lower levels of openness. And when we think about sort of, again, thinking back about the duties, that responsibilities of, of uh, agricultural um, endeavors, one is quite limited in the amount of time that they spent exploring and traveling. And in turn, this limits the time spent to sort of uh, engage with the uh, yeah, outside environment. On the other side, we see that urban areas have higher levels of openness to experience. And again, this makes sense if we think about the fact that larger cities offer tons of opportunities to socialize, to exploration is very easy. And these behaviors in turn can foster curiosity, creativity, or traits that are associated with open-mindedness. So yeah, overall, geographical psychology helps us really understand how the land or the landscape shapes our behaviors, and in turn, how these behaviors over time shape personality. Yeah, maybe to quickly add to that, I think what's really beautiful about geographical personality is the breadth, um, the diversity of factors that play a role. I, I always find that very stimulating. And to add to what Elisa was saying about those ecological factors, they mark one end of the spectrum, and the spectrum stretches so far to, to very different factors. So, so one stream of research that I personally found really enriching is this idea of marrying geographical psychology to historical psychology. And um, Martin of Schonka in particular has been very active in this area. And to look at sort of what are the historical patterns in certain regions that may explain the psychological predispositions of the people living there today. 
And you have fascinating findings in that realm. So there's work by, by Kitayama, University of Michigan, so very close to where you are right now, Rebecca, and they are looking at frontier settlement. So they look at the European settlement of North America, but they also look at the settlement of Hokkaido, this, this northernmost island of Japan that was resettled by a samurai uh, during the major restoration. And they find that in both of these places, these very harsh and hostile environments, they seem to foster an ethos of independence. So the people that could thrive there back when they were settled again were people that had to be self-reliant and iron-willed and in some ways fine with living in complete isolation. And to the extent that that can leave an imprint and personality that then gets embedded in the social fabric and gets passed down all the way to current generations, you can trace this back. And you can see that this is still there. And, you know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's this research that uh, Martin Oshanka has been doing in England um, and parts of the United States, where he looks at former coal mining regions that used to really thrive during the Industrial Revolution. And then the economic climate in the world shifts, and these regions become economically irrelevant. And as a consequence, economically and otherwise depressed, culturally depressed. And you can see that through a combination of sociocultural influence and selective migration, the makeup of personality in these regions changes. So today, these parts, particularly in Northern England, tend to show higher levels of neuroticism and lower levels of, for example, openness and extroversion. And there's even a follow-up paper that came out in Nature Human Behavior a few years ago that can show that this is also showing up on the genetic level. So when we look at genetic markers of certain personality traits, you find that same pattern. I could go on and on and on, but we have limited time. And, and I would love for some one of us to explain a little bit more what's been found out in terms of selective migration and, and personality, which would be the third factor here. And there's really nobody more qualified to talk about this than Marcus, who has single-handedly written 80% of the papers in, in that area. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Marcus, to tell the, the listeners what that's all about. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Fritz. I actually became interested in personality psychology and this kind of a geographic aspect via selective migration approach, which is partly because I, I did my first master's thesis or master's degree in sociology, and it also included demography. So when I started to think about my own topics of research during my PhD studies, I, I kind of thought about also these demographic factors, fertility, migration, uh, mortality, which are the three main components that determine the structure and development of populations. And then I was really surprised that there wasn't almost any previous research on personality and, and my migration or residential mobility across different neighborhoods. So I thought that, well, this is an obviously interesting and important thing to study. And if this link hasn't been previously explored, then maybe I, I should do something about it. And uh, so I started to look at it in, in Finland, you know, in the United States, and then I have studied in, in different countries uh, in, in Australia and Germany and, and, and so on. So there the idea is, is to, to look at to what extent people's personality dispositions influence their decisions to migrate across different regions, uh, to different neighborhoods, who will be the mo most likely to leave, whether people are more likely to migrate from urban areas to rural areas or, uh, or vice versa. There's a host of different findings there. Some of those are kind of what you would expect. So people with high openness to experience, they, they tend to move more more often also people with higher extroversion tend to be more more mobile uh, some of the surprising findings have probably been for instance with openness to experience that 
it's not just directing people to urban areas, which you would expect it to do, but also that people living in, in urban areas, they, they are more likely to also, in some countries at least, to move also to more rural areas uh, if they have higher uh, openness to experience. So, so they seem to be a bit more mobile. And then some of the other factors that are important here are people's neighborhood dissatisfaction. So people tend to move away from neighborhoods that they, they dislike, which comes up uh, in, in personality traits uh, with, uh, with positive links to neuroticism, for instance, that it seems that at least in, in some of the findings, people with higher neuroticism, they tend to move more, probably because they are there more dissatisfied with their neighborhoods as they are dissatisfied with a lot of other things. And then, for instance, with, with the big five traits, the higher agreeableness tends to tie people to their neighborhoods, probably via friends and, and family and, and so on. So they tend to be less active in, in migrating. And these associations also tie into some of the discussions that have been going on related to political, this kind of segregation that people, especially in the United States, people self-select themselves to either Republican or Democratic regions and, and neighborhoods. So, so this seems to be also relevant for, for that, those kind of developments. And the, the interesting question is then, as Fritz mentioned, that so these kind of selective patterns, they start to affect the structure of the populations, even on genetic level, which has been shown in the uh, in the UK by bank data, that as people move away from the, those regions that are starting to slow down and, and, and so on, and, and they move to urban areas and cities that are thriving, then some people are led to those rural areas or those depopulating areas and and then some people move away. And interesting population level question is then, how do the regions become different as, as a function of these people's differential tendencies to move across different neighborhoods and, and regions? That's really fascinating. So also something that I heard is that you use different methods. You said the internet was really helpful in collecting data. In like more concrete terms, how do you collect all this data? You know, I think the way that I will answer this question now is probably different from what people will say in five years. It's certainly different from what people said five years ago. The constant in this field uh, for us are large-scale online surveys. I think they still tend to make up the bulk of our data sources, and that's primary data. As I said, so so Sam Gosling and Jason Renfro were really pioneers in that. Um, the out-of-service data set that they've been collecting for over 20 years now, that is one of the biggest data sources, I think, in the history of personality psychology to this day. And it's been used widely and not only for geographical psychological research, but we have other stuff too. Um, so, so in our lab, where, where before I moved to Vancouver, when Elisa and I were in Cambridge together, we had this, this opportunity to collaborate with Time magazine, and they wanted to reverse engineer the sorting hat from, from Harry Potter because the 20th anniversary of the first publication of the first Harry Potter book came up and uh, that, that that director of data journalism, uh, Chris Wilson, reached out to us and was asked if anybody was interested in doing this. Um, for some reason at the time when, when I was there, nobody else in the lab seemed to jump at that opportunity. And I was a diehard Harry Potter fan. I totally wanted to do it. And I also saw that this could be a, a chance to, you know, have potentially a questionnaire go viral. And so we obtained ethical approval. And I can tell you that mediating between American journalists and, and British academics and getting ethical approval is a nightmare. But it was totally worth it because by the time we launched this, piggybacking off of the fame that Harry Potter has that none of us academics will ever have, this thing spread like wildfire. 
And then suddenly you have millions of people taking those questionnaires, donating the data, and that allows you to build those new data sets, including variables that we hadn't looked at before. So there's courage in there, for example, that, that I'm quite intrigued by and fascinated with. And, and this, I think, is just one example of many other similar large-scale questionnaires that are happening. But there are other methods too. So one thing that has been hugely improving the field is this research coming out of uh, the University of Pennsylvania and Lyle Unger's lab and, and Johannes Eichstätt's lab in, in Stanford and, and Andy Schwartz's lab at, at Stony Brook. And they are psycholinguists. So they are scraping large-scale social media data. And then they use that to approximate personality and scale it up to various regional levels. And this is amazing because A, it gives us a benchmark to test our aggregated personality self-report findings against, but also it's much more scalable. So it allows us to move beyond languages and cultures that we are often restricted to with those large-scale surveys that tend to get most participants in the UK and the US. And I think over time, they will allow us to diversify our map. This is just a smattering of things that are happening. Other people are using the IAT data from Harvard, and they aggregate this up to study regional bias. I think more and more things are happening there, and that will only grow in the future. In my research, I've been using a lot of these open access uh, longitudinal and cohort studies. So especially when, when I'm interested in looking at migration patterns, then the best thing that you can have is, is longitudinal studies. Nowadays, they are already quite well known, the Australian HILDA and uh, German socioeconomic panel study. And in, in the UK, you have several cohort studies and also in the United States. But I, I guess it was my second paper related to personality and, uh, and migration published in probably 2008. I used the, the MIDAS data, the midlife in the United States data. And at the moment, the, these kind of open access, large longitudinal studies that have collected all kinds of information, they weren't that well known. And, and also, I, I can't quite remember how I stumbled upon the, the MIDAS data first. I remember thinking, like, so I, I can just have like, there's like 8,000 people, they've been followed through a couple of times, and uh, well, at the moment, only, only once. So I can just have this for free. And uh, I can just do research with this. So where's the catch? And there's like, no, there's no catch. You just download the data and, and, and you can just run with it. I've continued on, on this path ever since finding the MIDAS data with all the other data sets, because with the logic that, well, for the questions that need longitudinal studies, there's already so much data available. So you 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 want to take full advantage of, of all the data that have been collected because it's really valuable and they are extremely expensive and really difficult to carry out all those studies. So, so you sort of want to make sure that they, they become as well used as, as possible. Over the years, those data sets have become more, more common in uh, different countries. So, so they provide extremely valuable data for, for these kind of longitudinal explorations and, and studies. Yeah, I think I just wanted to very briefly share an observation. I think we often forget how unorthodox the methods that we use in geographical psych are actually. I mean, just thinking about our own, uh, I think 
speaking for the, all the three of us, just working with these Harry Potter surveys, or like we've been working with these satellite data sets or levels of land elevation. This is unorthodox in itself, and it opens so much opportunity and so much variety as well to understand and really tap onto into some constructs that have been until now so difficult, if not impossible to operationalize. There was no way in which we could have until up until now, I think, an understanding of, of or like means to to quantify how regions are like how do you even measure that how do you capture all these forces that that interact like selective migration and and yeah migration patterns climate uh, landscape put them all together and and try to understand uh, how they interact and influence a plethora of, of psychological characteristics so i just to share my enthusiasm okay, just a very quick add-on i think i think this is a hugely important Point that Elisa is making, and that is true both for antecedents, so so causes, things that we might use to explain existing variation, geographical, psychological characteristics, but also for outcomes. I think it cannot be overemphasized how wonderful a world we live in in terms of the archival data that we can just connect to spatially aggregated personality. You can look at all sorts of things that are impossible to study at the individual level. Example, we have this ongoing large-scale study where we look at suicide as an outcome. It is very difficult to link personality to completed suicides at the individual level. There's lots of ethical concerns. There is the obvious issue that you cannot survey people after they have completed suicide. Um, and there's also the fact that it has, thankfully, a very low prevalence in the population. So you would have to basically follow tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of people over time to wait until somebody commits suicide, which again is, is a very weird way to set up a, a study. Yet it's this really important outcome that we need to understand better. And at the geographical level, you can just get census level data down to any spatial level you want to look at from the county all the way up to the state. And you just link that to the personality data you already have. And the sky really is the limit there. You can do this for suicide. You can do this for obesity prevalence. You can do this for voting outcomes. You can do this for startup rate. This is very similar to what Marcus was just saying before as well. It's like you wonder where the catch is. And the only catch really is that you only have 24 hours a day. That's the only real limit. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that leads me to the next question. You already highlighted what is cool about using all these data sets and methods. Is there something that seems burdensome? I, I'm thinking about coding gravestones. I think Fritz, were you a co-author on that paper? This question makes me smile because I think you really should have invited Toby Ebert for this. Um, he, <laughs> I, I, I think with Toby's arrival on the scene, something fundamentally shifted. And Toby is way too humble to acknowledge this and would and probably will scold me for saying this. But, but I really think he has brought a level of methodological sophistication that we didn't have as a group before. And this is because Toby is a geographer turned psychologist and, and he sort of combines the best of both worlds and he really made us think about the spatial nature of these data in a way that I think as a field we hadn't before. Uh, and, and there's lots of things to, to consider here. So one is the fact that when you run uh, regressions at the state level, so say now you are no longer looking at 2 million individuals and in outcomes, but you're looking at 51 states and outcomes, you need to account for something that we call spatial autocorrelation. So that is the geographical axiom that more spatially proximate areas will always be more similar to each other than more spatially distant places. And that is relevant because in OLS regressions, which is our standard method, we assume independence of residuals. 
if you have spatial autocorrelation, that no longer applies. If that is the case, you actually need to run what we call spatial regressions. And they fit sort of spatially lagged terms, spatial lag or spatial error models. We'll not get into the weeds of that. But the point is, there is a way to account for this that will remove bias from these regression analyses that before all of us use, because that is the part of the standard psychological toolkit. So I think Toby really has, has brought new sophistication. I think we're learning from other fields as well. We're learning from economists. People have started using instrumental variable analyses that allow you to approximate causality by the use of exogenous predicting variables to, to a degree that, that was difficult to do before. And I think while we're talking about things being burdensome, one thing that I still find is very burdensome and that that people that are not in this field may not always appreciate is that because we're aggregating data, we almost always run into power issues. And this is crazy if you think about the fact that we are using some of the biggest data sets out there. So you start with say 2 million people and if you're lucky, you aggregate up to counties in the United States, then you have about 3,000. But if you're unlucky like me and you live in Canada, which generally is a privilege, but if you're unlucky as a geographical psychologist, you aggregate this up to 13 provinces and territories. And then what? Now you suddenly have a, a super small number of observations. So in recent years, we've seen some methods that try to combat this. Uh, conditional random forests have been very popular in our work because they are kind of designed for these so-called small and large piece situations where you have lots of predictors, but not many observations. Um, and there are ways to, to deal with this, but this is, this is a common issue that we are wrestling with and one that I think most people wouldn't suspect when they hear about the big data sets that are very common in our day-to-day -day work. I can definitely attest to the burdensome nature of uh, geographic data. So, so there's a lot of additional things that you need to consider or you you encounter that you wouldn't encounter in in data that are not geographic uh, in nature so when you have to combine data from let's say surveys and uh, then you have some administrative data provided by governments or, or countries and, and counties and, and so on. The, the linking usually is quite challenging. Obviously, it depends. Sometimes it might go really smoothly, but oftentimes there's different ways to code the, the locations. Maybe some of the other data sets have, have asked people's counties in, in names. So, so people report the name of the county and then some other data sets use the some code for the county or municipality, and then those have changed. So administrative regions, they will change, they will merge, they will divide. And then, then you have these situations that, well, I got uh, 800 of the municipalities to merge well, and then suddenly you have like 500 counties or municipalities that you really have to work a lot to weed out typos or different ways of spelling the, the, the names of the counties or municipalities and, and so on. The data management is quite often quite finicky, sort of picky, not to mention that when, when you import those to R, many of the spatial analysis packages in R are really finicky. So everything needs to be like exactly as they're supposed to be. And only then you can merge the, the, the files uh, together which is usually not the case with uh, sort of non-spatial data. That if you merge and there's some exceptions and not all the codes are included in the data sets, well, it doesn't matter. It, it merges well and it just leaves out observations that you don't have any 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 data. But with spatial data, you often have to like <laughs> have it exactly as as it should be. I'm hearing, and and also it also reflects my own uh, experiences that. 
there was so much opportunity to use geographical data. There was really almost any data will have a geographical element. So it's just a matter of like managing to access that data and assessing it in a meaningful way. And I think it can become overwhelming in the sense that if you think about geographical psychology as a sort of a mindset and a framework, any, any data can really have this geographical element. So one of the things that, for instance, I, I found quite fascinating and, and certainly I didn't think about it before is the fact that even free text, right? Like pe people mentioning, really writing a location, writing about that location is geographical data in a sense. And that itself opens so many opportunities, but it is also such a challenge. Uh, only to think about the fact that if people write, say Cambridge, Cambridge has two locations, right? Uh, it's both in the UK and the US. How do you attribute that word that it is seems like a trivial task but in fact it is really not yeah figuring out these subtleties and nuances is a challenge in itself because many of the data sets and many of the methods that we're working with have never really been implemented before or never been linked to psychology before so it's it's both challenging but also very satisfying once like we've we, you managed to present them in a meaningful way I would add also the the challenge of uh, data privacy and and ethics. Usually, when people think about the most most sensitive data in terms of privacy, people might think like genetics and uh, things like like that. Actually, the geographic information related to participants, living neighborhoods, and 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 so on, they are often, especially in these in these cohort studies, they are often the most sensitive data that that you have, and and for a good reason. So oftentimes the the applications or, or the other uh, other procedures to get the spatial data, uh, people's locations, is even more challenging to than to get genetic data. Many times you this is solved by so that uh, the, the data providers, they don't provide the exact locations of the individuals, in which case you sort of lose the detail of the of the data. So you might not get the even, let's say, in the United States, you wouldn't necessarily get the municipality of the people, you might get the region or the state. Oftentimes, you would want to get, of course, the, the most detailed data. But then for, for good reason, those are not always available for the small scale uh, that we would be interested in. Yeah, thanks so much. And it makes sense that there are so many different burdensome things in a field that is so young and you guys are so like pioneering and uh, managing and finding solutions for all these problems for like the next generation of researchers. Uh, can I still ask, what would you say are the five most fascinating findings in the field so far? I know this is a really daunting task, but maybe we can <laughs> talk about the most fascinating findings in the field. I think you definitely have to take out the silence. So it sounds like we have nothing interesting <laughs> to talk about. The opposite is true. It's difficult to pick. You know, I think one thing that is amazing is just the fact that whenever we draw a map, the map shows something interesting. Like, I think there's one thing that's really beautiful that is a, a people of maps. And in that sense, it's really easy to sell, but also it really maps onto people's lived experiences of countries. And you, every time you look at this map, it'll tell you something you may already know or have suspected. It will tell you something you totally did not expect. And I think that is true for pretty much any construct we look at, at, at any level that we look at this. We have been focusing on the big five so much up to now, but you know, this is not only the big five. There's variation in, in empathy. There's variation in environmental attitudes. There's variation in subjective well-being. What I really love about the field is that you can always count on it showing you something interesting. 
But when it comes to more specific findings, what I find extremely cool in recent years are those sets of papers that show us that regional personality affects our individual behaviors, emotions, and cognitions above and beyond our own personality. So there's this one paper that I, I did uh, together with, with Toby Ebert, unsurprisingly, and, and Sandra Matz and, and Sandrine Muller and, and Joe Gladstone uh, two years ago. And we had this amazing uh, opportunity to look at spending behavior, where we had data from about 100,000 people, everything they spend their money on for an entire year across all the different bank accounts. And about 1,000 of them also had indicated their personality and where they lived. Now, we merged this with the BBC data set, which is sort of the big personality data set in the UK, to get information about the ambient personality, the regional personality of each of these areas where people are living. And then we put that against each other. So we wanted to see if regional personality can predict your individual spending independent of your own personality. And it turns out you find this. And for some of those traits, um, in particular extroversion, the effect of regional personality is as strong as the effect of individual personality. And to me, that makes a lot of sense. Having lived in different places in the UK, I think if you live in a place such as, say, Cambridge or London, where lots of the culture is about people have like small homes, but people spend lots of times in coffee shops or in bars, and it and socializing is a huge part of the culture, even if you're not a very extroverted person yourself, there is this gravitational force that's pulling you to the pub or pulling you to the coffee house because this is where everybody else is. So even though your own disposition might not be to spend a lot of money on this, you will inevitably end up spending some of your money in these places because that is what the cultural mainstream of the place you're living at is like. And I think being able to show this is fantastic. And this also, I think, really highlights the relevance of this field. This shows us that regional personality is not only relevant for policymakers, but in many ways, some of which are entirely unknown to us still, it will affect our day-to-day -day life. The very core of how we live our lives is to some degree affected by the personality of those around us. That to me is a fantastic finding. I absolutely love that observation and I com completely resonated with it. And I think this is just to bring to discussion also Jason's huge influence on these my my thinking and the way I'm thinking about geographical psychology. We've been recently having discussions about this distinction that has been around for many, many years in geographical science, this distinction between spaces and places. Spaces are physical, right? They are a location and really nothing more. Places, on the other hand, are infused with meaning, um, have their own personality. And I think geographical psychology, since we've sort of talked about the, its history and, and its findings, has attempted to, and continues to attempt, I think, to capture the very personality of places and, and what defines us a place. And, and I think what we were seeing again and again is that personality is such a factor, right? It is such an environmental factor. It is a driving force. Um, and this is, we've seen again, like in, in, in our research as well, we see that regional personality influences urban spaces and, and there is an interaction there between regional personality and even how many, say, buildings, shops and so on are around that area. Um, and I think that speaks uh, volumes and really helps us capture this uh, idea of what, what the vibe of a place is and this very idea of, of uh, what a place entails and what, what defines a place. And I think personality is, is part of that. I really like the sort of surprising findings that have come up with, especially with the mapping personality distribution. So, so I remember when we did uh, the study in the UK with, with Jason looking at the, this kind of municipality level studies 
We found that agreeableness was higher in Scotland, conscientiousness was lower in London, uh, and and then uh, agreeableness and, and conscientiousness, they were kind of higher in, in more suburban places and, and so on. And some of those are kind of counterintuitive findings. Many people were saying like, no, no, the Scots should be lower in agreeableness. They are, <laughs> they are like angry people or something. There are obviously some, some findings that kind of strengthen the stereotypes like higher openness to experience in central London or something like that. But then there are these findings that go against your expectations. I really enjoyed those kind of findings that are kind of surprise uh, and, uh, and say that, well, actually the, the patterns that you expected on the geographical level, they are, they are not quite the, what you would uh, guess uh, beforehand. I was wondering, and you've already elaborated this a little bit about like the broader implications of your work. It's you mentioned policymakers, but also the broader public, the individual. Can you elaborate a little bit more about the implications of the area of geography and personality? I will say that I think actually we are currently underselling what we have to offer. So there are implications, but I think as a field, we are not yet good at really translating them into the kind of impact that we could and should be having. And to me, that's something that I observe in psychology more broadly. I think as a discipline, we're just not as good at this as, say, our colleagues in business schools are or in economics departments. I do think there are policy implications here. And this is just because we see that regional personality adds incrementally to the explanation of core societal outcomes in all sorts of domains above and beyond all the usual suspects that policymakers routinely take into account. And, and this is to say the variance that we can account for is not the same variance that economic factors can account for. So basically, if you make these important decisions about things such as where, distribute, where to distribute funding for new startups, how to campaign in elections, um, how to ensure public health, I think you can learn new things from our work. And I think we are just not very good yet at really bringing to the table what we can bring to the table there. But going back to what I was just saying about, you know, the impact that regional personality has on individuals, I think that in and by itself is something that is has strong implications. The head of today actually looked up how oftentimes people move in their life. And uh, the average American resident moves over 11 times in their life. And if we think about this country and the huge diversity, not just in terms of, of psychology, but in many other ways that this country has, that means you will be in very different environments. And that will always, to some degree, affect how you live your life. And I mean, the US is a particularly residentially mobile country, but you know, the, the typical German, and the typical British resident moves about four to five times in their life. And, and that's still a lot. So I think to that degree, we have implications that span from the very basic level of just what does it do to any individual anywhere in this world, all the way up to how could political leaders and governments use this information to design policy more effectively. Just hearing your last comment now, Fritz, made me think about how absolutely current circumstances allow us to move very often and quite easily. And this is what we see as well. And I think there is value in that observation alone. And this is something that I've been 
also concerned with quite a bit. When we think about places in the past that we visited, I think oftentimes people are able to bring to mind quite easily places that are particularly meaningful to them. And I think there is a lot of value, even in that very simple observation. And this is a project that it's on the way now. But what we see is that if we urge people to just stop and reflect and retrospectively think about those places that are infused with meaning to them, that exercise in itself increases a variety of well-being indicators, such as social connectedness, even increases uh, a sense of meaning in their lives. Just taking this very, again, this very brief, uh, almost like intervention-like scenario um, helps people understand how potential future moves and future mobility opportunities can impact their well-being, I think even that is extremely valuable. And I, I might add from the migration perspective that I think identifying the active ingredients in people's residential mobility decisions, it, it is quite important for regional planning and uh, for, for municipalities and, and local communities who are, for instance, struggling to keep young people in the, in the region and, uh, and, and so on or trying to attract more, let's say, highly educated or specifically educated people in different fields of employment. Those kind of connections in which you could identify why, why do people move, who, who will be most sensitive to differences in, in, in different kinds of regional or neighborhood factors that might vary and also that might be influenced by policy decisions, what sort of environment should be built and uh, what sort of people we would expect to be sensitive to those changes in the neighbor neighborhood environments. I, I think those kind of results would be quite relevant for, for policymakers because uh, quite, quite often the, the discussion in these kind of topics tends to assume that people move mostly because of employment or the factors that are making or influencing their, their decisions are related mainly to housing prices and, uh, and so on. Obviously, those are quite important factors, but what the personality or geographical psychology in general is saying that, well, yes, they are factors, but they are not the only factors. And there's a much broader psychology in, in play when we consider uh, how, how people are attracted or want to move away from specific neighborhoods and, and regions. So what does the future of research on geography and personality look like? What are the next likely milestones in this field? Geographical psychology started off with personality traits, right? Like we've we've mainly looked at big five, and I think it is still very much the case, although we've we've definitely moved into other constructs like Fritz was mentioning before. And I think this is one of the features of geographical psychology at the very least to be used as a framework. And I think there is so much to do there, like to implement this working theoretical framework to a variety of, of constructs, not just personality traits, but other dispositional constructs and if we start to think about geographical psychology as this malleable sort of framework, we would be able to study a bunch of other constructs in a, in a much more sort of nuanced way, just by simply taking this geographical element into account. I absolutely second that. You know, with sort of Christmas coming up, I, I will give you my wish list. This is not so much what I think is going to happen, what I would like to see in the field. I think in addition to broadening the scope of the field in terms of the constructs that we're looking at and branching out into neighboring disciplines, I'd like to see more diversity in the researchers drawing our maps and in the places of which we draw our maps. I think the flip side of having these large-scale data sets for places such as the United States that also offers 
an amazing abundance of archival indicators is that we tend to gravitate towards studying the same places over and over again. And I really think the entire field of psychology relies way too heavily on data from Western countries. And it should be a mandate of geographical psychology to be a geographical psychology that doesn't have so many blank spots on the map. I think we should really try to branch out. And there's there's some hope that this is going to happen. So this summer we kicked off sort of the inaugural conference of geographical psychology in, in Barcelona and Elisa and Marcus were both there. And, and we see that there's interest from, from other places that might be historically and traditionally underrepresented. And I think this is really something that excites me. And I'd hope that we'll get those kind of maps, not just from the UK and the US, we'll get them from Turkey and from Japan, from South Africa and from Colombia. So that that is one one part of my wish list. Since I was a little child, I've always had long wish lists. I'll tell you a few more things that, that I'd like to see happening. I think there is a genuine tendency towards interdisciplinarity in this field already that's baked into it by its very nature at the nexus of data science, geography, sociology, and psychology. And I would love for us to lean into this even more and to have people from those other disciplines also join us more. So I think if we can tighten those links, both methodologically, but also in terms of content and in terms of just collaboration research teams, it'll make all of us more fortunate for it. Lastly, I was hinting at that before I really think engagement with policy. You know, as, as a whole discipline, not just in geographical psychology, I think we have a responsibility to our taxpayers. We need to explain to them why it is that they should fund all our work. And I actually think we are generating lots of really fascinating and useful, useful insights. And I think we need to be better at bringing those insights to those people who can work with them and implement them to change society for the better. So those are the three things that I'd hope to see in, in the years moving forward and that I'll try to dedicate myself to um, in my own work. One additional thing is to provide a better understanding of the different environmental and uh, geographical and spatial factors that are driving these associations. So a, a lot of the times we sort of have to uh, have had to rely on simplified or traditional ways of dividing these geographical lines, such as urban versus rural, but I don't think we have a, a good detailed understanding what other factors there would be in terms of the spatial factors that people pay attention to, whether it's about coffee shops or whether it's about urban greenery, whether it's architecture and, and so on. So those kind of important factors that are affecting people's views of the neighborhoods and, and their decisions to move to those neighborhoods or away from neighborhoods and, and so on. And what are the things that then build up these aggregate level patterns of, of personality and, and other psychological factors, political distributions and, and so on. I, I think those are the things that I would I would hope geographical psychology to study in, in more detail to better understanding of the environment. Also because many of those patterns might depend on the country uh, that you are studying those uh, differences. So for instance, the, the urban-rural difference will be quite different in the UK, uh, in Finland, um, and then not to even mention some of the other countries that uh, Fritz mentioned, uh, those countries that have not been studied almost at all. And we don't quite know whether the urban-rural difference is the same kind of difference that we would observe in, in these countries that we have a lot of data from, or whether it might be completely different, because those urban-rural differences and other differences that might sound the same, they will have very different kind of content in, in different countries. So there you get a better understanding of the, of the psychological content of those environmental uh, 
uh, factors. Great. Thank you so much. I'm looking forward to seeing more of your field in the future. Thank you so much for taking the time to being on our podcast and uh, talking about your own work in the, in the field. Thanks for having us. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much for organizing. It's been a fascinating discussion. This was really nice.